Our first Bible reading is from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, and it's chapter 5, verses 10 to 12. It can be found on page 968 of the Church Bibles. Matthew 5, verses 10 to 12. Blessed are those who are persecuted because of righteousness, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven. For in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The second reading is taken from St. Paul's letter to the Thessalonians, uh, chapter 2, which you find on page 1186 of the Church Bible. It's page 1186. You know, brothers, that our visit to you was not a failure. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. For the appeal we make does not spring from error or impure motives, nor are we trying to trick you. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We're not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. You know we never use flattery, nor did we put on a mask to cover up greed. God is our witness. We're not looking for praise from men, not from you or anyone else. As apostles of Christ, we could have been a burden to you, but we were gentle among you, like a mother caring for her little children. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you had become so dear to us. Surely you remember, brothers, our toil and hardship. We worked night and day in order not to be a burden to anyone while we preached the gospel of God to you. You are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. For you know that we dealt with each of you as a father deals with his own children, encouraging, comforting, and urging you to live lives worthy of God, who calls you into his kingdom and glory. And we also thank God continually, because when you received the word of God, which you heard from us, you accepted it not as the word of men, but as it actually is, the word of God, which is at work in you who believe. For you, brothers, became imitators of God's churches in Judea, which are in Christ Jesus. You suffered from your own countrymen the same things those churches suffered from the Jews, who killed the Lord Jesus and the prophets and also drove us out. They displease God and are hostile to all men in their efforts to keep us from speaking to the Gentiles so that they may be saved. In this way, they always heap up their sins to the limit. 
The wrath of God has come upon them at last. This is the word of the Lord. Dear Lord, that is indeed our prayer, that you would speak to us through your word and that this letter written thousands of years ago would have a particular relevance to us here today. For Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Do please be seated. And would you like to turn to that second reading? We had 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, which is on page 1186. This is a great little letter, and it's actually the first recorded letter that we have of Paul. Now, next year, from the 28th of February to the 6th of March, 2016, St. Michael's is going to be holding a week of special events to which we can invite our friends to hear the good news of Jesus explained really clearly. Roger Simpson is going to be with us, and uh, those of us who are on the house party will know uh, both what a clear speaker Roger is, what a warm speaker he is, and um, just what fun he is. It promises to be a really cracking week. It's a great opportunity for us to be thinking of our friends and neighbours, our colleagues, and indeed family, who we could invite to these events. And we've got eight months till it happens, and believe me, the 28th of February will come around like a blink of an eye. And so we're beginning to think about planning and preparing and praying for, for this week. Because if the message of the Christian faith it really is good news, and if, as Paul says in this passage to the Thessalonians, that the message is the word of God which is at work in you who believe, then we'll surely want to be on board, won't we? I hope so. Now, but I want you just to imagine that it's the end of this week. It's the 7th of March, 2016. And praise God, during the course of this week, 50 people have decided to become Christians. Wouldn't that be wonderful? We'd be delighted. I think we would. They're looking around church this morning. I'm not, not so sure. I think I'd be delighted anyway. I'm sure we would. But just imagine that for some bizarre reason, those of us who are here, the rest of us, were, were whisked away and the 50 were left here on their own. They are the new St. Michael's Church. What sort of nurture would they have? What kind of leadership would there be? Who would train them? How vulnerable they would be? Well, this is exactly, exactly the situation here in Thessalonica. Paul, as we saw last week, had only been there for three weeks. And then he'd been chased out of town. And he'd left behind this baby Christian church. They also had been on the receiving end of opposition and hostility. And this baby church was left to fend for itself. But as we saw in chapter 1 last week, Paul saw evidence of a genuine work of God in these young Christians. Chapter 1, verse 9. They turned to God from idols to serve the living and the true God. And word has reached Paul that this fledgling church is actually going strong. Chapter 3, verse 8. They're standing firm in the Lord. And they're a source of great joy. Most of Paul's letters begin with a couple of verses of, hello, how are you? I thank God when I remember you. But in Thessalonians, Paul takes three chapters to say how grateful he is to God for them. 
He loves this, this church, and they're going really well. And yet, these Thessalonian Christians had been told by Paul's critics that Paul was a charlatan. He didn't really care. I mean, after all, he had only been there three weeks, and then he'd abandoned them. That Paul was simply a sort of religious salesman seeking to build his reputation and, oh, he's after your money too. And these Thessalonian Christians might have been tempted to think, is this message that we heard from Paul really true? And given that it's quite a lot of opposition we're facing, is it really worth it? Now, I think those are two questions that people often ask today. Is it really true? And even if it is, is it worth it? And in chapter 2, verses 1 to 16, our passage for today, Paul reminds them that, yes, it is true. It is worth it. He reminds them by reminiscing about his visit. Let's look at Paul's ministry strategy amongst these Thessalonians and see his shining integrity standing out as a Christian minister. And as we look at Paul, let's ask ourselves, how do I relate to other Christians? How do I relate to my unbelieving friends? Do I ever talk to them about Jesus Christ? And if I share the good news with them, is it done out of grim duty or out of love? Do I see my non-Christian friends as sort of spiritual targets? I heard this week of one student who just heard a, a talk who uh, asked the friends who'd taken them to the talk, do you love me because you want to convert me? Or do you want to convert me because you love me? It's a good question, isn't it? Do you love me because you want to convert me? Or do you want to convert me because you love me? So let's look at Paul's ministry in 1 Thessalonians chapter 2 and see what we can learn for ourselves from him. And the first thing I think we pick up from Paul is his tremendous courage. Verse 2. We had previously suffered and been insulted in Philippi, as you know, but with the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel in spite of strong opposition. Now, let's just remind ourselves of Paul's trip to, to Europe. Back in Acts chapter 16, you might like to keep a finger in 1 Thessalonians and just, just have a quick reminder of what he got up to. Acts chapter 16 in verse 12 Paul goes to Philippi, where he preaches. And the result, in verse 19, is that Paul and Silas are dragged across the marketplace to face the authorities. Chapter 16, verse 22, he's beaten up. Verse 23, he's sent to prison. And in verse 39, he's asked to leave the city. Now, put yourself in Paul's position here. Beaten up, thrown out, what next? Now, I don't know, if I had been uh, Silas next to Paul, I think I might have said, Paul, how about a sabbatical? How about a holiday? Paul, have you heard that there's this rather cushy teaching job at the university in Jerusalem? Why don't we head back there? No, chapter 17, verse 1. When they passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was... Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures. The result? 
Verse 5, there's the mob again, a riot. They start attacking Jason's house. Off they go. Paul and Silas, chapter 17, verse 10, they escape by night and go to Berea. And guess what they do in Berea? They go to the synagogue. They start preaching. There are new Christians. Troublemakers appear, and Paul and Silas have to move on again. Do you see this kind of repeating pattern? This has been the pattern throughout church history. This is, this is the pattern across much of the world. It's only been in the last few generations in this country where it's been moderately socially acceptable to be a Christian. And it looks like the tide's turning again. To be a Christian does not earn you popularity points. On the contrary, to be a Christian is often to invite hostility and opposition, accusations of bigotry, and, of course, as we know, in many parts of the world, persecution. To be an active Christian, someone who speaks about our wonderful saviour, someone who seeks to invite their friends to Christian events, that's going to require courage. And where does Paul's courage come from? Look at verse 2. With the help of our God, we dared to tell you his gospel. It's strangely comforting that even Paul needed a special dose of godly courage. Even Paul couldn't do this on his own. We read in Ephesians of Paul asking his fellow Christians to pray that he would be courageous. Because naturally, on his own, he wasn't. I think all of us at times will be tempted to water down the message. Or perhaps to say nothing at all. I remember once at at university having this this invitation in my hand to give to a friend. And I went round to to his rooms And I remember looking at the invitation. For some reason, the invitation was shaking. Uh, I heard voices on the other side of the door, and I thought, I'll come back when he's alone. Or even better, I'll come back when he's not here, and I'll just shove the invitation under the door. I went back again. Again, this extraordinary invitation was shaking. And then I could still hear laughter on the other side of the door. No, they're laughing at something. They're bound to laugh at me when I come out with my little shaking invitation. Finally, I got him on his own. Extraordinarily, my friend accepted the invitation. He wanted to come. But we all need courage. We all need to pray for God's help and strength. And this week of events next February and March will be a failure unless we pray. Pray for Roger Pray for ourselves to have courage. And, of course, pray for our friends. Paul's visit to Thessalonica was not a failure. It was a success. He says, even though we copped it, we had courage from our God. The second reason that Paul's visit to the Thessalonians was not a failure was his openness in verses 3 to 5. When Paul says, you know, in verse 5... And he actually says it six times throughout this passage. He's appealing to their knowledge of him, their their remembrance of his visit. Paul's critics had said in verse 3 that he had dodgy motives, that he was trying to con them. 
In verse 5, they, they, Paul's critics said, you know, he's flattering you. He's trying to talk you into emptying your wallet into his coffers. They say, Paul is a con artist. He's either out to feather his own nest or to burnish his reputation. Now, these kind of accusations are very hurtful, especially when you think of the comfortable life that Paul had given up as a Jewish rabbi in Jerusalem and the kind of new life that he'd embraced as a traveling preacher. Beatings, prison, disgrace, being chucked out of the city and so on. So Paul's quite open with these Thessalonian Christians. He says, verse 1, you know it wasn't a failure. Verse 2, you know we dared to tell you the gospel. Verse 5, you know we never used flattery. Verse 10, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were. Others may say all sorts of things about us, but you know what really happened. And the key verse is in verse 4. On the contrary, we speak as men approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. We are not trying to please men, but God, who tests our hearts. Paul's saying that he's a trustee. All that concerns him is that he should please God. And in that sense, he's not bothered by the opposition. God has given him this great task to share the gospel, to tell the good news of Jesus Christ to other people. And so Paul gets on with the task. Chapter 1, verse 6, in spite of severe suffering. Chapter 2, verse 2, in spite of strong opposition. And it's a good question to ask ourselves, perhaps on our own, in a moment of uh, sort of honest reality. Whose opinion matters more to me? God's opinion or the opinion of my friends? Because, of course, we all know it should be God's opinion that matters most. But when push comes to shove, when we're in the heat of the moment, when I'm standing outside the door with my shaking invitation, I often think it's my friend's opinion of me that matters more than God's. And if, like Paul, we are convinced that God has entrusted us with this task, then we'll want to please God more than anyone. It is very tempting at times to water down the gospel, just to say things like that God loves us all, full stop, with no mention of accountability or judgment, or as Paul does twice in these first two chapters, mentioning the wrath of God. It's very easy just to say that Jesus is a saviour and a friend and not to say that Jesus also is our Lord and Master. Tempting to water down the gospel, it's also tempting to put extra gloss on the gospel, to try and burnish it, to make it sound more appealing than the Bible ever promises it to be. So become a Christian and you'll never be ill again. Become a Christian and you won't have any financial worries. You won't have any problems. Life will be all sunshine and smiles. It sounds very attractive and appealing, but it's simply not true. And when trouble comes, people rightly feel conned. 
And they often give up because they've been given a phony gospel. God has entrusted us with his gospel, the good news of sins forgiven, peace with God, the gift of his spirit, his constant presence and joy in spite of opposition or illness or suffering, and ultimately the promise of heaven. It's not a bad package, is it? It is good news. So we don't need either to water it down or gloss it up. Big question, are we going to be faithful trustees? This week of events, next February and March, will be a failure unless we ourselves are clear on what the good news is and isn't. And clear that God has called us to share it. Verse 4 says, we're not trying to please men, but God who tests our hearts. Paul was very open with these Thessalonians. He said, you can read me like a book. The third reason why Paul's visit to the Thessalonians was not a failure was that he cared for people. This is verses 6 to 8. And Paul here uses the analogy of a nursing mother. Now, there is nothing glamorous about being a nursing mother, There's nothing glamorous about changing a dirty nappy. There's nothing glamorous about having to get up three times in the night. There's nothing glamorous about going to a party in your posh frock and suddenly noticing milky vomit on your shoulder. It's an unglamorous but vital job. And like a nursing mother, we need to give time to our friends. Paul says in verse 7, we were gentle among you, caring. Sometimes I think we can be so clear on the truth that we could perhaps be a little bit harsh or strong or abrupt or maybe even overly controlling. But And crucially, as we seek to share the good news, look at verse 8. We loved you so much that we were delighted to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our lives as well, because you'd become so dear to us. Paul loved these Thessalonians. He certainly didn't just see them as a kind of target. He wasn't trying to reach his quota of converts. He loved them, and he shared his life with them. Our week of events next February and March will be a failure if we try to harvest without sowing and we treat people as targets and not people who we love. Like nursing mothers, we need to sacrifice ourselves for other people's sake and invest in people and love them. The fourth reason why Paul was so effective and his his visit to the Thessalonians was not a failure was to do with his behavior in verses 9 and 10. Paul and his companions display absolute sincerity and that's why they spoke with such authority. People could see that what they said was backed up by the lives they led So Paul could say in verse 10, not just you are witnesses, but so is God. And as I've been reflecting on that verse this week, I thought, wow, 
You know, you can, you can con all the people some of the time, but you certainly can't con God. <laughs> he says, you are witnesses, and so is God, of how holy, righteous, and blameless we were among you who believed. Paul and his companions demonstrated the beauty of a holy life. Now, I think one of the biggest lies of the devil is that a holy person is boring or austere or remote, rather like that old family portrait that has somehow been passed down the generations to you of your great-grandfather's great-uncle. And he looks at you wherever you are in the room with that disapproving look that says, thou shalt not. I think that's what some people think holiness is. You know, so holy, I can't possibly relate to that. And it's just, un- it's, it's not nice. Well, absolute nonsense, of course. Think of the most holy person who's ever walked this earth, and it's Jesus. The most perfect man with the most attractive personality who, without really doing very much, just attracted people around him. And 2,000 years on is a role model for millions of a good life well lived. So as we seek to speak for Christ, so Paul is saying here we should be living for Christ. This Christian behavior, this holiness, should be seen in how we work, verse 9. You remember our toil and hardship. I don't know if you really thought about how holiness applies on a Monday morning. Punctuality going the extra mile, staying late to finish the job, reaching out to a colleague who's struggling with their work. That's all part of the toil and hardship of a holy life. And this Christian behavior, this holiness, is also seen in how we live in verse 10. Holy, righteous, and blameless lives. So how we use our free time. For myself or for other people? How controlled am I with drink? With my thought life? How do I use my home, my possessions, my money? What do I say about people when they're not there? Holy, righteous, blameless? If we're not noticeably different... People won't listen to us. I think what Paul is saying is the quality of our lives actually attracts people to the Lord Jesus. They see something quantitatively different and qualitatively different, and they're drawn to the Lord Jesus. That's why there's so much in the New Testament about behavior and holiness and comparatively little about evangelism. Our week of events next February and March will be a failure if our lives are so compromised that we've become invisible. The fifth and final reason why Paul's trip to Thessalonica was not a failure but rather a resounding success is that he gave constructive advice. Verses 11 and 12. And here Paul switches from the nursing mother to the pastoral father having been gentle and restrained. Here I think there's something a bit more positive and active in verse 11, encouraging, sorry, verse 12, encouraging, comforting, urging to live lives worthy of God. 
You see, Paul's concern is not just to see converts, but to make disciples. Or to use a phrase that we we often use here, to make disciple-making disciples. Because he knows that if the church is going to grow and go on down the generations, it's not just enough to tick a few boxes and say we've got a few converts here. We need to grow a church that wants to make disciples. And praise God, that kind of church still exists 20 centuries on. Paul's concern is to see these baby Christians grow in faith. His concern is to encourage them. Do come along to our home group. Do come along to church. Why don't you come to church with me? Sit sit with me. Let's meet for a coffee beforehand. I'd love to do just for starters with you. His concern is not just to encourage them, but to comfort them. Perhaps stand alongside them, to be genuine, to be a real friend in a time of need. To meet regularly with them, to pray with them. Not just to encourage and comfort, but to urge them. This is a bit, bit stronger, isn't it? I think urging, I think, is sometimes you, you see these uh, um, perhaps slightly pushy parents on the touchline. Urging. <laughs> sort of reliving their lives through their children. But challenging, perhaps. Maybe urging people to live lives worthy of God is maybe a gentle challenge to a lifestyle issue. Not because we're holier than thou, but because we want to spur one another on to love and good works. So Paul is he's not advocating strong-arm tactics here. He's simply saying we must take discipleship seriously. Let me ask you to reflect back on when you first became a Christian. Who looked after you? Was there somebody who met with you? who read the Bible with you, who prayed with you, someone who encouraged you. What a help that kind of person is. If you, if you never had that, then I'm sorry, but you can put the record straight by, by doing, do, doing that, being that for someone else. Who could you look after now? Are you looking out over, perhaps over coffee? Perhaps there's someone who could really benefit from a Christian friend who might read the Bible with you one-to-one, might be a prayer partner. Our week of events next February and March will be a failure unless we carefully look after and nurture young Christians. We don't want flash-in-the-pan converts. We want long-term, lifelong disciples. Paul's mission to the Thessalonians was very brief but very effective because he was courageous, open, caring, godly, and full of constructive advice. What a great role model for faithful Christian ministry, and what a great example to follow. And may we do just that. Let's pray. We thank you, Heavenly Father, for this lovely portrait of a very gentle, caring, concerned disciple-making Apostle Paul. And we thank you for the way the church has been, the baton has been passed on through the church for the last 20 centuries. Thank you for the opportunities you give us 
And we pray that we would make the most of those opportunities. That we would indeed be a church of disciple-making disciples. And we ask this for the glory of the name of Jesus, our Lord and Saviour. Amen.